Welcome to the Forging Honor Podcast. I'm Jonathan George. And I'm Benjamin Jones. Here at The Forge, we explore what it means to live as Christian men. Along the way, we'll be doing weekly challenges to build character through action. We are by no means experts, just two young Christian men trying to make sense of a wild world. That's right. We're doing our best to learn and hope you'll join us on the journey. And if you want to get directly involved, go to forginghonor.com to find information on how to join our community. This is episode 15, Nameless Men in McCarthy. through a McCarthy novel. Uh, now, in my counting, I want I want to clarify something here. <laughs> I read for five of the 10 days. That said, I got so into my chosen work of McCarthy that I read the whole, I read the whole thing. So I accomplished the challenge. I just wasn't doing it for the second week. Um, so I got five of the 10 days. But I, I, I mean, I, I consider that a, a win in terms of I, I achieved the challenge. Banjo, yourself, I, I read nine uh, nine days, and I I had a little bit of an advantage over most people, I think, in that I have a large collection and a growing collection of McCarthy. So I finished The Crossing, which I was borrowing from from somebody else, and then I was like, well, JJ is reading Blood Meridian. Uh, I got to review that. Um, and you knew The Road better, so I reread The Road. Right. I finished The Road. Oh, so you got through and, a lot. Yeah, I, I'm about halfway through Blood Meridian, um, and I, I actually – Yesterday, I ordered another book. Um, See, I'm going to read Child of God next week. If I'd been a good Forging Honor host, I would have also reread The Road. And then I had meant to actually read All the Pretty Horses, um, uh, but I ended up letting someone borrow it. So I just, you know, I went, well, I, I did read Blood Meridian. And I was very, yeah, I was yeah. very, I was very thrilled with it. I enjoyed Blood Meridian a lot. Um, I have to say, I liked The Road more, which I know for you is a controversial opinion. Well, no. So yeah. And I, I, you know what, let's just get into it because no time to waste. I'm, I'm giddy about this episode. I mean, I am just thrilled to be talking about this uh, with you, JJ. This is, this is a lot of fun for me. Um, so yeah, let's just get into it. You love the road. I, that is to me, that's not a controversial opinion. That is his easily his most well-known, most famous, most beloved book. Um, personally, it's not my favorite, but I, I think, I think this comes from me because I'm not a father. You are a father. Uh, real quick, give us the rundown. If someone's tuning into the show and they, they read a different McCarthy book, what's, what's the five second rundown on the road? Well, I should heavy, 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 heavy spoiler alert. I think. Oh yeah. Banjo and all I, of the books that we're going to read here. 100%. Um, not going to be holding off on the road and probably blood meridian as well. Um, I, I might I, spoil the crossing or all the precourses or any of right. those. Books. I, I think it would no be, country for old men for sure. I think, yeah. Oh yeah. No country for old men. Um, just saying McCarthy's open for fair game on the spoiler side. I think we will do our best to stick to talking about the themes and stuff, but no guarantees on the, on some <laughs> of the specifics. Um, with that said, if, if you're, if you're, Concerned about spoilers, you can stop listening now um, or just skip straight towards the end where we do the next challenge. Um, or if you're not concerned about spoilers or you've read one of the McCarthy novels, I think one thing that's interesting about McCarthy is 
he is dealing with a lot of the same themes through his works. Um, and I very much enjoy, or at least what I've read of his. Banjo would be, I, know that better. I will also say one thing that I've noticed the more I've read McCarthy is that the reread of McCarthy, the second time through a McCarthy novel, is significantly more rewarding than the first. Right. So once you know the end, it changes everything. And I think even if you haven't read the book before and you're not sure about whether or not you want to try McCarthy, maybe just check the episode out, hear how the book ends, and then your first time through, you might be able to make more sense of it. Absolutely. All right. So with, the road. With Give that it. said, uh, synopsis of the road. Uh, it is a post-apocalypse landscape. Already a point for me. I love post-apocalypse works. <laughs> It's a post-apocalypse landscape across which a father and son are struggling. I think the son is meant to be about seven or eight. Um, he's young, yeah, he's eight very or nine, young. something like that. Um, and then I'm sure I'm sure others have figured it out based exactly on contextual hints. But they struggle their way across the southeast of the U.S. A second point for me. You know, it's it's through our old stomping grounds. They go past Lookout Mountain at one point. Yeah, they do. Um, and then over the Appalachians and hence out towards where my family lives in, in the Carolinas. Yeah. Um, at any rate, the, um, so they're, they're struggling across the wasteland across which marauding bands of other survivors of whatever caused this post apocalypse landscape. We're never told what exactly caused it. We're given kind of hints, but, um, we're never told exactly what it was. And then, um, the father has this inner struggle of what, what do I, how do I, how do I one keep myself and my son alive in a world where there's hardly anything to eat, where there are marauding bands of other survivors out to kill us, take our things and probably eat our dead remains. Um, cannibalism, a heavy theme. It really is. And then <laughs> how do we, I, I guess the central question of the book is how do you pass on hope when there is no hope? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the idea of carrying fire. I think other people would agree with that. Uh, you know, you could kind of argue what does it mean to carry the fire? What does it mean to have the fire? Um, but that's a consistent theme in in the road, particularly. So yeah. there's there's um not a not a five second synopsis, but a but a five line synopsis maybe. Uh scores a lot of points for me just on the relatability front too. I with I mean, I don't have an eight year old son. I have a one year old son. Um, but I read the road, it hit me in the perfect spot too, because I had, I read it right after for the first time, right after my son had been born. Oh, wow. Which, you know, already is kind of rocking my world. Um, yeah. and then oh, that's perfect. I'm reading this, this book where this father just, you know, it's all told from his perspective of how, you know, he has the internal thoughts and, and the struggles of a man who knows what he's up against and he's trying to shield the boy from the reality of the world that they're in, even though it's, I mean, it's impossible, right? right? One one aspect of, I think, McCarthy's writing is, and people talk about how violent it is. And it is violent. I, what's what's interesting is he doesn't get into, like, he doesn't desc ever describe the gory details to, like, at least in, in Blood Meridian or The Road. He, hasn't, he doesn't describe the gory details to such an extent where it's like, I can perfectly picture it in my head. He does it in a way where it's just like this, the way he uses language, it's like you know the violence is happening. I mean, you can't stop it happening. Yeah, it's there, but it's, like it's not. It's not like, and you see it, but it's what here. Let me, let me. I've got the road with me. Okay. Let me. I love I, if there's anything that McCarthy just like does better than anybody else, bar none, 
it's his first pages. I just love McCarthy's opening sentences and opening pages. And um, in the road, he's describing the world. And in the first, on the first page, he says, when he woke in the woods in the dark and the cold of the night, he'd reached out to touch the child sleeping beside him. Nights dark beyond darkness and the days more gray each one than what had gone before, like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world. And I love that line, like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world, because it's that kind of thing where it's like, it, it's what you're saying. It's not, he's not telling you, you know, the sky was this color and it had this aspect to right. it. it was, you know, it was these clouds, but it's, it's describing this, this sense of this cancer that's growing. And so you feel the sense of dread and disease and waste that comes with that without using any of those words, you know, everything is carried in by inference. Um, kind of what you're talking about. Blood Meridian does get kind of really <laughs> explicit. More so with- than the road. Uh, and there are, there are moments where it's much more explicit, but even so, um, so Blood Meridian, how about you go ahead and give us a quick synopsis of that? Yeah. Um, one of the fun things about Blood Meridian, and this is true of great literature, even of the road where, you know, you can give a, a synopsis, but the synopsis falls so far short of what it feels like to read the book. So um, brief synopsis of Blood Meridian. It's um, a story actually uh, based on a true story-ish of um, in 1849, um, after the Mexican-American War, um, there were bands of these roving uh, marauders who would uh, kind of go into the Texas-Mexico-American um, border territory and their job was to their the goal was to drive out the Native Americans who were there um, and and kill anyone that they found so that they could make room for settlers. And they would they were scalp hunters and they would get paid by the scalp. Um, so the story follows this young boy who's never named. Uh, he's just called the the kid or the child. And he joins up, uh, he's about 14 or 15, he joins up with one of these marauding bands. Um, and there's a whole cast of characters that kind of go with that, but the most um, famous, vile, and prominent is the judge, Judge Holden, who's this uh, enormous seven-foot, bald-headed albino man um, who just kind of has this very strange, um, very evil presence throughout the book. And the struggle is really kind of between the child and the judge. And the question, it's kind of the inverse of, of the road, you know, we talked about the road is this, how do you, how do you carry hope in a, in a world that has no hope? Um, and Blood Meridian, the question is what happens to, to people who try to be good in an evil world? Um, I think is really the, the underlying question of that book. So you didn't like Blood Meridian as much. I would not say I didn't like it just, yeah, as much. That's as much part because, um, as you said, let's start positive. What did you What did you enjoy with? That? Oh, I loved yeah. um, the writing style of Blood Meridian. It's so it's, good. I I mean, I couldn't put it down. I mean, it, yeah. you know, I, I think one thing with with both McCarthy books I've read is the first third is you got to have to get into it. But after that, I mean, he just once he once he gets in there, once you're drawn in, you can't you can't stop. Uh, so I couldn't put it down after that first what, third of Blood Meridian. What scene did you read that I was that you were like, oh, I'm in. Like at what point was it like? Uh, oh, I got there. You know, I I don't. I'm not sure there was a particular point as far as like, man, this is. I I will say I think when 
when he first joined up with the Apache hunters, um, because, you know, towards the beginning of the book, he's just wandering and there's no sense of direction. Yeah. And I yeah. think that maybe that's intentional because as soon as he has, it's interesting, as soon as he's with the most vile, evil people that he's going to encounter on this trip, yeah, there's a sense of direction. Yeah. And that's when I think I really started getting into it, right? Because the story picked up um, up to that point. You know, like, I don't know. I will say that first, not not very first scene, but that scene um, at the beginning where he goes to the revival. Oh my gosh. It's, that, it, I love that scene so just, much. It definitely tells you this is the type of story you're in for. This is your opportunity yeah. to put this book down now. Yeah. Um, and he, it's, just, it's not that he doesn't warn you. He gets, yeah, he, he gets so, very clear. So where this you're going. scene. Um, yeah, the, describe it for us. Uh, so he goes in, he goes in, uh, the kid goes, he's, well, he left his home of Tennessee and he's traveled all over. I can't actually remember, uh, where, yeah, let me read, where he I, let me just revival. read the first, let me just read yeah, the first page because the, the first page of Blood Meridian is, is so incredible. Um, so this is, yeah, first, first page of Blood Meridian. See the child. He is pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He stokes the scullery fire. Outside lie dark turned fields with rags of snow and darker woods beyond that harbor yet a few last wolves. His folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water, but in truth his father has been a schoolmaster. He lies in drink. He quotes from poets whose names are now lost. The boy crouches by the fire and watches him. Night of your birth, 33, the Leonids, they were called. God, how the stars did fall. I looked for blackness, holes in the heavens, the dipper stove. The mother dead these 14 years did incubate in her own bosom the creature who would carry her off. The father never speaks her name. The child does not know it. He has a sister in this world that he will not see again. He watches, pale and unwashed. He can neither read nor write, and in him broods already a taste for mindless violence. All history present in that visage, the child, the father of the man. And so this character who, who already has this, this uh, already brooding in him, this mindless violence, uh, steps into this. He's in this town, right, JJ? And then he gets in this, this, it's raining, and so he steps out of the rain into this revival tent. Correct. He's he's in Texas. He's, he steps into this revival tent where it, it sets the scene with um, this minister has been leading a revival, I think, for like five days. Up to, at yeah, this point. it's you been know, going it's on for a while. For long revivals, and, but it's raining. So everybody's stepping in and out because they'll step and it's in. it's been raining and for days. They're stepping in and it's hot and it's humid from all the people packed in the tent. So then they step out and they get soaked in the rain and they come back in. That's, that's the continual stream of people in and out of the tent. So the revival is going and then the judge walks in. Um, and the judge starts accusing the uh, the the reverend of all kinds of heinous sexual crimes of you know not even being a minister yeah or, not even being a minister and just saying yeah he knows he did this thing a few days ago in this town and they all almost hung him yeah and and finally you know he's going on about it and the minister screaming lies lies and and finally a guy in the audience says well I should just shoot him right now. like he Texas he's like well just shoot him right now for these crimes like they're punishable by death anyway so he yeah. just shoots him and then shooting breaks out in the tent they all leave and then yeah, in a bar a moment later in a bar a little bit later they encounter the judge and they ask him oh how'd you know these things about this man where'd you encounter him 
He says, I'd never seen the man before today. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, he made it up. <laughs> it's so, it, yeah. So what do you make of that? Like, how do you, who do you, who do you think the judge is? Well, well, for one, I appreciate that that is so early in the book because yes, it does give you the warning of this is the type of man, the judges, and these, these yeah. are the types of things that will be occurring in this book. And the, the types of things that are immediately mentioned in the first couple of pages, you're just like, well, you can decide to put this down now. Obviously I didn't. Um, <laughs> but for that first encounter with the judge, I was like, wow, this is, um, I wasn't sure what to make of it. Um, and I expected what's, what's odd is you don't encounter the judge again for another, uh, I don't know, it's like another 30 pages chapters. Probably it's, it's a while yeah. actually. Um, and so because of that, I was like, well, is the judge just this character to set the tone of the book i i don't know but he was sitting there in the back of my mind right yeah. and then he pops up again in in the middle of mexico at <laughs> where this kid is in prison um but and it was like i think it does a great job of having that first scene where there's a couple of characters because he also encounters toadvine there yeah and who's so, bizarre who's just this strange outlaw character that's just along for the ride with the kid i mean he's yeah he's, I think Toadvine's the one who's got the necklace of, of, of ears. Yeah, right? correct. He's got a necklace of ears and he himself is missing ears, which is interesting. So he right. collects other people's ears, but he himself is missing ears. Yeah. Um, and he's been branded a, with um, HT for horse thief. Yeah. Um, and felon. Oh yeah. The F for felon. So he, he's an outlaw convict. He just lives that life. So Toadvine kind of takes the kid under his wing and it's this odd we like this odd kind of mentor relationship and you know, they like they kind of sort of respect each other. It's a strange relationship that is somehow yeah. healthier than everyone's relationship to the judge. Yeah. Because the judge, you realize like there are outlaws and then there's the judge, right? Yeah. The 100%. outlaws wanton killing. They will go and, and you know, they're, they're chopping the scalps off of men, women, children, all of them. Um, oh, the scene, <laughs> The scene where they describe the first Apache attack yes, it's just is brutal. so, oh my gosh, it's one of the most beautifully violent, horrible, I have to put the book down, I have to pick it back up, I have to put right. it down, I have it, to pick it back up. The gorgeous thing, the scene thing that sets the judge apart is, so at one point, and this is where you know the judge is truly evil, he mm -hmm. captures an Apache child mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, who, I mean, can't be more, I mean, the way he's described, he's like probably two or three. Yeah. It's a baby. It's yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a very very young toddler, and he takes this child and he he cares for him for like two days. And they're riding back across from this place where they've just killed this Apache child's entire family. Um, and the outlaws they're not sure what to make of it, but you know they have whatever. It's a baby, like they don't really care. And then the judge is happily playing with the child, and then a moment later he kills the child just wantonly. Yeah, and the outlaws no, the outlaws the rest of the outlaws like they don't know what what to do with that. Like Toadvine, what does he call the judge? Um, like Toadvine is openly disgusted by the judge for that action. Yeah. And he's an outlaw who's literally just killed women and children. Yeah. But like there's some difference for them in that cold blood versus we're writing in and this is our job situation. And and the scene where he kills the puppies. Oh yes, the puppies. You know, he just, he which buys is so it. brutal. I was like, I, at that point, I think so. The puppies occurs after the child, and it's like mm -hmm. it somehow somehow the puppies is worse. Yeah, well, I don't. Well, I don't know. It felt like, well, the judge is going to do this. Like when the when the puppies show up in the scene, right. I immediately know. Well, they're going to be dead in the next page. So, not don't get attached. Yeah, 
Right. Yeah. And I think that is really so much of the point of Blood Meridian is there is this huge force of evil in the world. And we could get into some real deep philosophical territory. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with, with like the Gnostic heresy or anything like that. but Decent bit. So the judge is, is a representation of some of the ideas in Gnosticism. Um, do you remember the part where he, he gets referred to as a Sejuron? I guess how you say that word? Yes. It, I, I think he, he calls himself that. I'm actually open on that page. Yeah. Um, um, that's, a, that's a Gnostic term that has to do with this kind of uh, evil force that kind of walks the earth and kind of has ownership over it. Right. Which gets to that scene on, on page 207 where he talks about he's the one who, you know, I, what's I, the line? I, well, I should give some context here. So the entire time the judge is being simultaneously the single most evil character in the book, he is also the most learned, most scientific in the book. So, so what he does... He's a renaissance man. Yeah, when they're not running around killing Apaches or wanton other civilians who get in their way, <laughs> the, the very people they've been hired to help. Um, he's cataloging in these little notebooks, everything they come across. He's, he's doing biology. He's, he's taking butterflies, you know, he's doing the whole, the whole thing that you, that you read about scientists of yeah the Renaissance and, and enlightenment doing. He can speak yeah. every language they encounter. He can just speak. Yeah. He already just rattles enough. it off. And he, um, he's clearly very learned. He he's very good. That's the other thing. Every time they encounter royalty or semi royalty, the you know, governors that they encounter of, of the Mexican government, he's, he's the only civilized. one that can speak to them appropriately in a civilized manner. Yeah. He knows he knows the politics. He understands how to approach it. But he can also get up to the most debauchery of anybody. Um. So then, yeah, he he's someone is asking him of the of the outlaws. Someone's asking him, why do you catalog these things? What are you what are you writing here? And he, he's trying to, exp the judge, the judge has explained to him and he has this one line, um, that sticks out, uh, that sticks out to me. So he, he's writing his letter. He says, or the judge wrote on, and then he folded the ledger shut and laid it on one side and pressed his hands together and passed them down over his nose and mouth and placed them palm down on his knees. Whatever exists, he said. Whatever in creation exists without my knowledge exists without my consent. And that line just threw me off. Like up to that point, yeah, I've been very able and willing to accept that, yeah, he can be a Renaissance man and he can, he can do all these things and also be very evil. But then you get to this line and like that's the crux, I think, of his person yeah. in a sense. Because that's when you realize the whole world is centered on him. Yeah. And he recognizes that and he's okay with that. And he doesn't care about what anyone else thinks yeah. in, in the worst possible way. Yeah. Yeah. I, so what do you, what do you make of it? What, did, what's your, how do you, did you, were you able to reconcile it? I, well, I mean, reconcile it in the sense of he's a terrible person and he's flawed. Yes. I mean, that's, that's very evident in the book. I think, I'm not, I, I haven't yet figured out quite exactly because I don't like doing this with authors. I don't like saying, well, what are they trying to say? Because a lot of authors. Oh, but that's the point. Aren't, well, a lot of authors <laughs> intentionally aren't trying to say anything. They'll say that. Yeah, sure. I think McCarthy, uh, by the very fact that he writes philosophy directly into his books and he directly says what he's trying to say, you can 100%. say that with him. 
yeah. but I haven't figured out what he's trying to say with the judge. Yeah. You know, I, I know what he's trying to say in the road and maybe that's part of why I liked it a little more. Right. Like it's very clear. It, it hit home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was emotionally along for the ride. I mean, mm-hmm. I cried at the end of that book. Oh yeah. I did not cry at the end of blood Meridian. I just I sat down and went, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. We had to talk to you about the ending at some point. Here's the, here's the thing with the judge. Um, and here's the thing they know about McCarthy is, and, and one of the reasons why I love him so much, McCarthy is doing something entirely, I'm going to say, braver than anybody else writing in American fiction right now, which is he's trying to say something, exactly your point. You know, Everybody is afraid to write a novel that can go up against the heavyweights like Hemingway right. and Faulkner. And McCarthy is like, let me, you know, give me the bat, sometimes literally. Um one of the things that he's doing within the story is he's he's pulling in references to a whole lot of things. So uh, he's a huge Herman Melville guy. Um, Moby Dick is like his favorite book. Um, there's a lot of Paradise Lost in this story. A um, lot of Mark Twain, a lot of Hemingway, all these all these classics. This scene where this may, it's maybe my favorite scene in the whole book, but the scene where Tobin, the ex priest, is describing. The how they escaped from the Indians that one Which, time. Which, by the way, I love that there's just an ex priest along with this marauding yeah. gang. Like it, it really shows the uh, duality of man. Anyway, back yeah. to back to you. Well, this scene where he's like, "Yeah, we were out of gunpowder, and so the judge took us to this volcano that was in the in the wasteland, and with a combination of uh, charcoal, saltpeter, and urine, made gunpowder." It's like. Well, what? he first he first spent days harvesting bat guano in order to right. acquire all of that. Like they go to right. multiple locations to get everything. It's the most bizarre scene and just absolutely bananas. But it's also it's also a, a reference to um, John Milton's Paradise Lost. There's a whole scene in Paradise Lost where uh, Satan is giving this speech to uh, to, to to hell, basically. And um, everybody is, uh, or, or that is to say, McCarthy's kind of like copying from it. Like there's there's whole paragraphs and phrases that are kind of almost totally wholesale lynched from it, uh, stolen from it. How dare so, you? My high school I teacher know. said I couldn't do that. Well, Cormac, his his famous quote is, "Books are made out of the dirty little secret is that books are made out of other books," which I think is a great quote. Um, but I was really confused on the judge too. I think it helps to know that um he's he's referencing Moby Dick so the judge is this big white whale of a man much like in Moby Dick Ahab is chasing after this white whale and the white whale is kind of this um evil force in some sense that kind of hangs over the story the other thing to know about the judge is and I'm getting this from uh, a college professor um at Covenant now actually um the judge is the the representation of the enlightenment right i definitely could sense that like he's definitely i know things that i can throw off god right and and he's the he's modern man right he's the modernist man um who does away with all of the physical violent sexual mores of our time and says i i am the definer of of life and death uh and anything that exists beyond my knowledge exists without my consent 
you know, and that's kind of why he has this this forceful presence over the whole world. That makes sense. Is he's trying to tamp down everything that that he can't understand, you know. And I don't think there is anything that the judge doesn't understand. I think he even understands himself as kind of this supernatural being a little bit. Um, there's something you kind not- of question that by the end because yeah, he shows up again, and it's been what another twenty something years, yeah, more than that, almost thirty years, kind of based on. Yeah, the child's a man now. Yeah, he's referred to as the, as the man in the last chapter. And yeah, he shows up and he appears unaged and he he's out there getting up to all kinds of debaucheries. Um, and he declares to the, anyone that will listen right at the end that he will never die. Yeah. Yeah, he says, uh, this is on the last, on the last page. And, and they are, he's in, there's the scene, they're in a, uh, a bar slash brothel and the judges dancing and playing the fiddle. And it says, and they are dancing the board floor slamming under the jack boots and the fiddlers grinning hideously over their canted pieces towering over them all is the judge. And he is naked dancing his small feet, lively and quick. And now in double time and bowing to the ladies, huge and pale and hairless, like an enormous infant. He never sleeps. He says, he says he'll never die. He bows to the fiddlers and sashays backwards and throws back his head and laughs deep in his throat, and he is a great favorite, the judge. He wafts his hat and the lunar dome of his skull passes palely under the lamps, and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles, and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, dancing and fiddling at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow, and he's a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. And it's this, this great haunting image. Well, it makes you wonder, like, I mean, is he really? Like, is he, is he just a man? Like, up to that point, you believe, along right. with almost everyone else, that he is just a man. But there are hints dropped earlier that other, other characters in the story don't really think he's of this world. Right. And then right at the end, that leaves you wondering. I mean, and it's not, he's and out, it's not, he's he out every single other character up to this point. Yeah. He says, the book says, he says he will never die. Correct. Which makes you wonder, okay, so what does he think about it anyway? So there's all kinds of questions. Yeah. There. And then, and then you got to look at the epilogue, right? right? So there's, there's right after that, there's this really strange scene that describes, um, it says that there's a guy who's out digging holes and there's, there's people behind him who are filling in the holes and they're gathering the bones and it's really strange and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I had to do a lot of research to kind of figure out what was going on. Aren't they digging um, fences or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what it is. They're, they're digging, they're digging holes and they're filling fence posts. Um, and Yeah, he says. Yeah, he if says, you have you have you never dug, have you never dug fence hole fence fence posts before? No, I I never dug. So it's given uh, away right hole. there. This so yeah, it says in the dawn there is a man progressing over the plain by means of holes which he is making in the ground. He uses an implement with two handles and he chucks it into the hole and he enkindles the stone in the hole with his with his steel hole by hole striking the fire out of the rock which God has put there. The two implements I just I dug one the other day. Oh really? Yeah. So it's if you know if you know what you're doing with 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 post hole diggers, you know what that is. 
Oh, okay. So what what does it look? Is it like a jack? I what I don't know what it looks like. I've never had to do I'll it. I'll have to, I can I can try to describe it. So there is, um, it's it's a two shovels essentially. Oh, connected okay. To each other by by a lever. So the the handles you're able yeah, to pull yeah, yeah, yeah. apart, and the bottom the metal comes together in the shovels and grabs whatever's beneath them. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, yeah it was you with the, the two handles is what gave it away because that's the only tool I I mean, there's other tools out there with two handles, but that's the only oh, one that's you good. use on the earth I know of. That that's funny because I read it and I was like, what is going on here? What because I I mean I've done farm work, but that's that uh, that particular job I've never a had lot to do. Of fence holes. <laughs> but um good shoulder yeah. workout. If you're ever looking to, for I mean, my high school shoulders much better shape than Good my shoulders. now shoulders. <laughs> oh, you get great shoulders, JJ. <laughs> we might have to, I don't know, <laughs> cut that. <laughs> I'm getting getting a little blushed over here. <laughs> anyway, the the scene here at the end um, is is really about the closing of the West. You know, this is the last time that this world kind of exists. Right. You know, the frontier closes and this this blood meridian is kind of the time where the judge rules in the west it's time where this like it's it's a little bit hellish and there's this um there's this time for mindless violence that's kind of over everything and now you have this westward expansion and the land is becoming civilized and now we're kind of digging over it with these with these fences but i think mccarthy's point is it's still underneath everything that we're doing here. You know, there's something, and this is why it's one of the great American novels of the 20th century is this, this book is still present with us. You know, the events of this book all happened in some respect. All uh, the, the book that he's pulling from that McCarthy is pulling from um, is an autobiography called my confessions on a guy who is, it's a book written by a guy who was with the Glanton gang which was an oh, actual wow. group. Yeah. Um, who is the kid and the judge, the judge is a real person and Glenn is a real person. And, and all of the events that happened are kind of based, based generally. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to look at that and go, this really complicates the American dream, you know, uh, and kind of the American myth and, and what do we do with ourselves and no country for old men is really the same idea you know um when's the last time you saw that movie do you uh it would have been college um let's see which speaking of of kind of the realities of of the history of america have you read empire of the summer moon or heard any interviews with the Mm-mm, author of that no. book i actually haven't read the whole book but it is about um the um wars between the texas rangers and not the apaches but the comanches yeah um during similar time frame uh so Mm -hmm. in texas same stuff's happening that's happening in mexico in this book um and the things described by that author are just as bad if not worse than in blood meridian and these actually happened yeah give you a picture one to be a texas ranger you had to be able to shoot a dinner plate i think from was it 50 yards on a moving horse jeez with the, I mean, the pistols at the time were not, you know, anywhere no. near as accurate as they are now <laughs> um, at a full gallop. Right. So they could do incredible feats of marksmanship. They were incredibly strong. But the average, if you didn't, um, I think, what was it? On 
what was the actual average? I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was a ridiculously high attrition rate. Basically, um, your chances of making it past your first year as a Texas Ranger uh, were basically zero. Like you just didn't, yeah. they were just throwing everybody at, at the Comanches that they had. Yeah. And the Comanches were known and the Texas Rangers then had to employ the same tactics that are happening in Blood Meridian. Right. Uh, in terms of just writing in, killing everybody, scalping them, getting out of there as fast as possible. Like that's yeah. that was happening. Both sides were doing it. It was the only way anyone could survive. Um, what's crazy though, and there's there's a whole discussion that can happen here about providence and about um the tides of history and and the way god guides them it's these things had been happening and were happening I, it's it's remarkable my one thought reading blood meridian like the whole time is this is fallen man entirely uh -huh. across the 100%. globe this happened yep. across the globe to this day this is i mean these types of things happen yeah um, yeah and i mean and sadly, I, I sometimes the United States contributes to some of that, um, and we have been contributing to that for a long time. I think I, I I don't want to excuse anybody or any any nation and say they're morally correct for doing so because everybody else is doing it. But I am saying everybody's doing it all the time, and it's this sad reality we live in, and that that's the state of fallen man without God. Yeah, man does this man man hires Texas Rangers and goes after the Comanches who are killing everybody around them. I mean, the Comanches had had an empire the size of the Roman Empire at one point that stretched. I mean, they enslaved thousands of other yeah. Native Americans. Well, and it's you're I mean, you're absolutely right. Both both sides are unrelentingly brutal. I mean, nobody gets out alive. There's the Cormac McCarthy. The, the, the whole idea of the peaceful indian sitting on the, the noble shores savage. the noble savage and then white yeah. man comes along or at the same time noble white man comes in and teaches the, no, the backward yeah, savage both are, both are total i mean i don't want to say both are total lies because there's always the exception to the rule right both, right, are, right. both are essentially lies i think the only it is only by the grace of god that any missionary ever braved any of that on mm -hmm. both sides i mean you talk about and only by the grace of god that any Native American was willing to accept the trust of a white man. You know, like well, both sides. there's that, but also the fact that any, say, Texas Ranger or any any local governor who's looking out for his own means. I mean, you look at you look at the example of the the British in India. They wouldn't let certain missionaries yeah. in because they knew if they let the yeah. missionaries in, then the India uh, the Indians there would not. Um, they would they would want their freedom. Yeah, because that's and, what Christianity breeds. <laughs> right. One of the things I think that is really compelling is is the child, right? Yeah, bring the, it back around. Bring it back around. Bring it back around. Let, let me. So the story, and and I want to hit this fast, and then and then look at it in No Country Old Men, and then I think we I think we have to end on the road to to end with some hope. Yes, we do. Um, but you know, if you look at the child in Blood Meridian, he's the one who's kind. You know, he's kind of the exception to the rule. And kind is a stretch. Kind I mean, is a stretch. But like, he's but, noticeably different, but that still doesn't make him that much better. No, he's not. But, you know, he's the guy who, you know, the one the one guy gets shot with an arrow and everyone is like, just leave him to die. Don't, don't touch him. Um, he'll kill you too. And the boy is, the child is like, I gotta, I gotta help him. I'm gonna help him out. Um, and takes the arrow out and, and heals him. And the judge, when... Again, heavy spoiler alert. Um, when the judge kills the boy at the end of the story, 
it's that's the reason he gives is you were you were kind you know you were not fully committed right. to this mission you have to die you know um and i think that's the philosophy of of the judge is to say all that you know it's it's an evolutionary mindset anything that does not survive is weak and must be expunged from the earth um and so i think i think as as men in america that's an idea we have to wrestle with because that's that's an undertow that's really it's it's deep below the surface and it's really easy right. to get pulled into on the other hand you know looking at no country for old men which i think i i think if you look at blood meridian as like the darkest place in mccarthy right pretty much there's some other books i haven't read they may be darker um i think the road is kind of the most optimistic mm-hmm. weirdly that McCarthy gets. And then right in the middle, I think is no country for old men because I think at the beginning of that book or that movie, if you've seen it, which you, know, I, you, you told me the movie is as faithful of an adaption as probably I mean, pretty much any, yeah. any book to movie adaption can be. Yeah. It, they, they cut out some stuff that are, it, it's not, it's not essential to the plot. You know, you don't watch no country for old men and go, Oh my gosh, they, you know, you know they cut out this character. Um, it's, it's really faithful. But, you know, he's got that great speech at the beginning where he says, um, you know, the crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job, not to be glorious. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. You can say it's my job to fight it, but I don't know what it is anymore. More than that, I don't want to know. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He would have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. You know, it's, it's like, it's almost yeah. like the, the sheriff, Sheriff Ed Tom is looking at Blood Meridian. You know, it's in the same place. It's in the same physical location 140 years later. And he's looking at it and kind of going, you know, I, it, nothing's changed. Right. But I, I can't believe the violence that's here. I can't believe the terror that's here. And Anton Chigurh is, is, the modern equivalent of the judge, you know, right. he's this, this terrifying, violent, seemingly all knowing, uh, force that pushes its way across the desert. Part, part of what makes the judge and Anton so terrifying is they're so sure of themselves. They have right. a very, very clear, well thought out philosophy. Yeah. Unlike everyone else around them, who's right. Floundering in this world. Like you can almost forgive. So Glanton in Blood Meridian, you can almost forgive him for being as evil and vile as he is because he's just doing what he knows to do, which is go kill for money. Yeah. Right? And following the judge. You yeah. Know? He's just he's just along for the ride and and he he doesn't know what to make of this world. The judge seems to know what to make of this world. And for and same with Anton. They they seem to know what to make of this world. Yeah. And so they decide, well, with that, I'm going to go kill people. Like that's, and, that's the conclusion they've come to. Like we would hope that if we figured the world out, we would come to a better conclusion, right? Yeah. But that's, that's the temptation and that's the danger of, of living in a world as chaotic as this one is as soon as you see someone who you think they figured it out, like they have the answer, you, you go to them and, you know, you do whatever they say because they, right. they have the solution. You know, I, I think you can look at around at any number of megalomaniac maniacal figures in in america or in world 
you know, on the world sphere today and, and say, that's what's going on. You know, these are people who think they've figured out the world and anyone who disagrees with them is going to get the old judge holding treatment, you know? Right. Uh, and, and I think that leaves the rest of us who, who want to have hope, who want to have, you know, kind of a Christ centered view of the world in a very, in a very dark and scary place because, you know, it's, it's kind of what it says in the new Testament about, you know, the wisdom of God is, is held in the foolishness of men. You know, what, mm -hmm. what God counts as wise man counts as foolish. Um, and I, I, the scene that I keep coming back to is the end of no country for old men where, you know, he, he has those dreams and I'm just going to read it because it's yeah, go for it's, it. It's so good. Um, also, again, if you have not seen No Country for Old Men, it does not get better. It's such a great movie. Tommy Lee Jones reading this speech is so ah, uh, it's incredible. I I could watch it all day. Anyway, this is this this is the speech from No Country for Old Men. He says, "Had dreams, two of them. Both had my father in them. It's peculiar. I'm older now than he ever was by twenty years." So in a sense, he's the younger man. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere, and he gave me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in older times, and I was on horseback going through the mountains of a night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold, and there was snow on the ground, and he rode past me and kept on going. Never said nothing going by, just rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. And he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out in there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. And that's when the movie ends, and it's a that. great. It's that. it's so it's the best ending of a movie, just period. Um, and the book is is great too. Um, and I totally ruined it by geeking out about it like that. But I'm not going for the Oscar. Well, I I think, um, I think you're not. I mean, it's a great book. You're like it's so good. You're, you're well worth. It's well worth geeking out about. The thing with that particular film, which I've only seen the movie, I haven't read the book, but the thing with that particular story itself is. I think it, it does such a wonderful job of um, showing each individual character and their, who they are, their motivations and what they're trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, the sheriff's character there is, is like, at least in the movie, I don't know how much of this in the book, but in the movie, you don't really realize that he's, you know, kind of quote unquote, the main character until the near yeah. the end as other characters. Well, he's behind everything. Off. Yes, you can you can tell the whole story of No Country for Old Men and never mention the sheriff. Exactly, you know, and he's the narrator in the book, and so he's kind of like he's ending up catching up to all these things, mm -hmm. and he's never able to stop any of it. Um, he's always after the crime has occurred. Exactly, and, and I just love that you know at the beginning he's talking about you know you'd have to put your soul at hazard and say you'll be a part of this world, and I think that's that's that that's the scariest thing in in this world 
And to go up against these forces that are so impossible, the Anton Chigurhs and the Judge Holdens. And I think that's why the road is so powerful to, to wrap, you know, to, to get to a landing zone. Cause really we could do a whole two part episode oh, on 100%. this. Um, oh, but yeah, the road though, you're, you're right about that. I hadn't thought about that because yeah, in the road, the man has the opportunity to take himself out of, out of the world multiple times. Yeah. It's one of the big struggles of this. Of the well, story. right. Cause he has his revolver and it's made pretty it's clear got- at the beginning. He has two bullets. Yeah. Two bullets at the beginning. And, it's made clear he thinks one is for his son and the, the second is for him to relieve them both of this world. He, he never tells his son that, um, right? He, he wants no, to know well, the son, the son knows that if they get attacked, right? Well, he goes, he's supposed to, he's supposed, yeah. he's supposed to turn it on himself, but it's, his father tries to, I don't know. His father tries to shield him from the reality of what that is in, in his own way. Yeah, and he says, you know, we're the, we're the good guys, right? You know, and the kid, the kid still has the sense of like there are good people and there are bad people, even in this world that is apocalyptic, that right. that is left behind. You know, there's still good and there's still evil, and we're carrying the fire. What's interesting to me is I think the pivotal scene there in the road is he has these two bullets, um, and I mean, again, it's been it's been a minute since I've read the road, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but if I remember correctly. You know, they, they encounter a band of men. One of them grabs his boy. Yep. And I think he has a knife to, to him and he's going to kill him. And in that moment, you realize with two bullets, the man has a choice, right? Yeah. He could just end it right there and then for both the boy and for himself. Um, but instead he shoots the man holding his boy. Yeah. Leaving one bullet. Right. They make their escape. Now he has one bullet. So that that messes up his plans, right? Because yeah. now without the finding of more ammunition, um, he either has one more shot at defending themselves and he can't bring himself to kill his son and then himself remain. But he, and he can't bring himself to kill himself and leave the boy. And leave the child, yeah. And it just, it leaves the struggle of the book just, that that's on your mind for the rest of the book. yeah. And and I think if you connect if you connect the end of No Country for Old Men to really the whole story of the road, you know you get the story of a father who's trying to go out into the darkness to prepare the fire in all that cold right. and all that dark, um, and and trying to, you know, I, I think for McCarthy part of the rule for fathers to sons, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as a father to a son. Part of the role is is to say we're going to go out into the dark and, and prepare a place for our children, you know, and we're going to try make, anyway. Yeah. Try and, and make this thing worthwhile for them, even in the face of an evil that we can't overcome, you know? And I, I think there's something really powerful and, and beautiful. McCarthy often gets accused of, of being a too masculine writer, which I'd also like to hear what you think about that. Um, but, but I think there's something, it's also a huge element and there's a lot of scholarship on this, but he's got a huge thing about hospitality. And in every McCarthy book, there's kind of these scenes of like making food together and building a home together and making, making a livable space. Um, and that seems to be a, as much a part of masculinity as, as the mindless violence. I don't know. How do you, 
look at the road. You, you're a year later. You've got a yeah. son. You're thinking about these things. Well, for one, I think every father should read the road. I mean, if they if they're willing to stand up to some of the stuff inside side of it, which I think ultimately that's that's what we're called to do as men and as fathers is go out to the world and um, and stand up to its darkness. I mean, again, only by the grace of God can we do that. I'm not saying go find go go leave your nice home and and go find that but you you don't go find the judge whatever you do don't don't, go find the judge judge. but you can work through these these thoughts and and work through it and then try to live it out in in your everyday a little bit i i think uh as far as the accusation of them being the books being too masculine i don't i don't think that's a problem maybe they are is there i think they are more masculine than they are feminine in a sense <laughs> i'm not I'm not denying that I, but i don't necessarily think that's an issue considering the types of stories he's telling yeah are there are there any parts of like a mccarthy book or mccarthy men that you look at and you go i want to be like that that's the kind of man i want to be or i can't the kind of man i don't want to be or like i don't i don't agree with that yeah there's no one in blood meridian that i want to be like i mean yeah I, i'm sorry i can i i imagine someday i'll sympathize with the sheriff a lot in, yeah. in no country for old men um but yeah in the road it's very easy for me to put myself in that father's shoes yeah and to understand the struggle he's going through because i actually str- love oh, sorry you go. Well, you love- no, you go okay 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 um, i insist i think the struggle of the father makes sense for, from a young man's perspective in the sense of the world often feels like the world he is physically in. Yeah, It feels like, I, I think, at least for me anyway, I, I can be kind of mentally and emotionally in, right? You know, it feels mm-hmm. like everything beyond my immediate surroundings is dark and dreary, and I'm not entirely sure what's out there, what's next. Other times, it, it doesn't feel that way, but at, at its worst, it does. And I think struggling through that, and yeah, oftentimes it is, I mean, love for my son that gets me up in the morning, yeah. right? That's the thing. I'm like, cause I wouldn't be doing this for me at this point. Like it just, it just, you gotta live outside of yourself. You gotta live outside yourself a little bit. Um, yeah. And you have to have something to hold on to. Yeah. No, that's, that's really great. I think uh, not being a father, the two stories that speak the most to me right now are are probably no country for old men i I, blood meridian is my favorite mccarthy book for sure um but there isn't a character that i'm like oh i want to be like that um but no country for old men and then all the pretty horses um i'm looking forward to reading that yeah i really love all the pretty horses it's it's a it's a much kinder read than blood meridian um and but it's like you get the you get a little bit more of the hope from the road and a little bit more of the West from well, Blood it's Meridian. It's part of a trilogy, isn't it? Yeah, it's the first one in the trilogy. Um, and it's much more easy to read than the other two. Like, it almost feels like a regular book. Um, but John Grady Cole in in that book is the protagonist. And he's just a lot of fun. Like, of all the characters in a McCarthy book, he's the one that I'm like, I would, I would want to hang out with this guy. He seems cool. Um, and that book, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about with pain and suffering there. 
but but it's nice to read a McCarthy book and be like, I like this guy. I want to yeah. I want to be with this guy. So that's that's my encouragement for all the pretty horses. If when you get the chance to read that one, I think I think that makes sense. And I, I think yeah, I don't think McCarthy is necessarily trying to give us people to be like no. in the ones I've read. No, definitely he, not. He's he's more exploring. He's throwing a lot of the world at you and saying, how do you respond to this? Yeah. Yeah, and he's really challenging our modern sensibility of it. You know, I think I think uh, if you look at the like the very first page of Blood Meridian, like before the story even starts, there's those three quotes. You see that? You know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. And it says, there's a quote here from the Yuma Daily Sun. Clark, who led last year's expedition to the Afar region of northern Ethiopia, and UC Berkeley colleague Tim D. White also said that a re-examination of a 300,000-year-old fossil skull found in the same region earlier showed evidence of having been scalped. You know, and right. I think his point with including that is saying this, this is not common or this is not uncommon in humanity. You know, this isn't just like, oh, this happened in this one particular time, in this one particular place. There's some of this, uh, you know, Cain and Abel violence that is just inbred into us as human beings. Every and, society. I mean, yeah, it's remarkable the how, like, reading history, it shocks me that I live in a world where I'm not encountering death every day, right? That's right. just part of how society used to be. Whether yeah. whether it was you were inflicting it upon someone else or just witnessing it or or yeah. suffering because of it, and we think of ourselves as as more evolved because of that. And you know, I think I think right. it's a privilege and a blessing that we get to live in a time where we're not killing each other every day. But I think McCarthy's point is time and place, this, time and place, and this is inherent to us. Like it's not like these parts of ourselves go away just because. The right. time does, you know, this, this part of our soul is still there. So how do we make sense of that? Um, and, and again, and yeah, I we could, we, I think sometime we'll have to do, we'll have to do a return to Cormac McCarthy because there's so much here to talk about. Um, but I, I think, I think one of the things with, with a McCarthy book uh, is to say, to counterbalance the judge. You know, the judge is the modernist, the the Enlightenment Renaissance man who says that all that exists is what I know. Nothing exists without, you know, anything that exists outside of my knowledge exists without my permission. And I think McCarthy is saying there is something that exists without our permission, without our knowledge. It's the soul, the spiritual. There's there's something beyond what we see right. that exists, and we, we have to make sense of that. Um, and we can't live a full life not understanding that spiritual side of ourselves. Um, that being said, he's an incredible scientist. Um, or, well, he's not a scientist, but he's very familiar with scientists. I mean, he had frequent right. discussions with like Oppenheimer and you know, all these guys. Not with Oppenheimer. About, about Oppenheimer. Yeah. Anyway, so much more we could talk about. Yeah, we're, we're to, running out of time here. I, you gotta, I, you gotta cut me off, JJ. Any I, last thoughts that well, you wanna? I feel like get into? we leave so much. Um, as as McCarthy does to his characters, we have taken his books and left them strewn about um, <laughs> all over. Uh, A most unscientific study. At any rate, I think, I think ultimately, um, 
I guess I guess the way to wrap this up would be to talk about the it from the challenge perspective. What did we learn from reading picking a book and reading through it intentionally for the, for this purpose? Um, and then two, uh, how would we go about continuing these types of efforts, if any? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a part of that question is why McCarthy in the middle of that? Yeah. Yeah, those are good questions. I think I I walked away from this challenge, one, as as a person who loves writing, just I'm head over heels in love with with these books. So there's that. Um, but on the other hand, I I think Robert Robert Frost has has a quote um, where he says that poetry is is when we make a momentary stay against confusion. Um, we make this kind of small enclave, the small fort um, against the the chaos that rages outside of us. And I think McCarthy is just really helpful to start to put a finger on some of those forces of chaos that exist around you right. and inside you and and to start to to wage war against them. You know, I think it's it's easy to read scripture and and to go to church every Sunday and and to hear the things that we always hear and to get those lessons that we always get and to kind of reduce sin and suffering to you know the five or ten things that we work on every week. I think you read McCarthy and you right. go, oh, there's something else inside of me that I have to deal with. You know, mm-hmm. there's something beyond me that I don't understand that I need to get a grip on, and I think. At his best, that's that's what McCarthy points us towards and helps us with to awaken us to the darkness inside and darkness around us. And I think to offer some hospitality, um, you know, even even to look at uh, folks who are different from us, you know, to, to challenge us with, you know, look what our ancestors did to Native Americans, you know, or or look what the Native American ancestors did to to our forefathers, like. In, in the gospel, we have to make peace with that, you know, because every tribe and tongue right. and nation will be present. And I think we need to say, all right, how do I, how do I make peace with that? And how do I live out the reality of that transcontinental union in, in this life? Um, I don't know. You think, do you have any thoughts on those things? Answers not, those not, as, not especially in response to what you just said. As no, I mean, the challenge goes, the, yeah, challenge as far as the challenge goes, um, I appreciated that we did this. I appreciated that we took a dive into a particular author. I think, yeah, just picking several of his works, um, semi at random, was good. I doing kind of a, a study of an author in that way as a challenge um, was something I haven't really done, and I enjoyed it. I think I'd like to do it again with some other authors actually, and just mm-hmm. kind of work through several of their their works that are. Um, Tolkien and Tolkien manliness would be an interesting and that'd be fun. Um, be a having fun already worked through most of what he has to offer. <laughs> uh, at any rate, the, I will say with McCarthy, especially, I think for me, the thing with, with him is, is similar to what you were talking about. Just that contrasting of the human soul with what, what he writes as soulless landscapes contrasting that with the reality I know of of it would be this but for the grace of God 
it would yeah. be this way for me, but for the grace of God. Like that's that's constantly that's all I could think reading Blood Meridian is man, it's a miracle that any of this place was settled in a quote unquote civilized way eventually. Yeah. Like it, it never should have happened. Yeah. That's that's all I can really respond to with that. Yeah. Sim- I mean, and and especially with, with books like The Road. just the hope that is presented at the end of the next generation lives on. Yeah. They'll do that. They'll do what they have to do. And all we can do is try to set them up for success. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a looking forward and there is that, there's that fire and there's that hope and, and there's that reason to hope. And I think McCarthy's hope can be hollow sometimes. And, and because there is, yeah, really I do wonder a, about that. I don't know what his uh, what his the you know the if if he was a Christian or not. I don't. He was famously reclusive and, and didn't give a lot of interviews. So yeah. I don't know. But I, I, I you know I don't I don't get that sense from his novels. Yeah. But I I think as Christian men we got to look at you know carrying the fire for us. I think isn't just oh well we're going to keep the species going, but it's also mm. because there's no promise that that happens outside of Christ. But further, right. we have, we have, you know, the surest of hopes, the greatest of hopes, that our salvation is already accomplished uh, and applied. You know, our, our 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 resurrection hope is sure, um, and we have that conviction of things unseen. And I think, greater than hope, we have faith. You know, um, and so I think that's the fire that we can we can carry for ourselves and and for the next generation. Amen. All right, on to the next challenge. Um, as a reminder, challenges last uh, for 10 days. That's Monday through Friday for two weeks. Um, so we were kind of at a loss with after McCarthy. Like, what is the next? <laughs> where do you go, do you after, go after this? Um, and I think, I think one thing that uh, we are wanting to explore a little more is, is, yeah, man's place in this world, our place in this world as young men. I think... Um, so the, the challenge out of that is pretty straightforward, um, and it's literally be in this world. It's go outside um, intentionally so. So if you already work outside, this is separate from that working outside time. This is separate for me from the time I spend outside just because I happen to be outside. Um, this is intentional. Go out on your own. Go outside. Um, and I did we set a time, Banjo? I think F- 15, like, minutes, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Just go outside, 15 minutes. Um, you could even do what's called, uh, have you heard of earthing or grounding? I think so. I've it, heard of, it, I've heard of nature bathing. It's something my, my doctor actually recommended. He's, uh, just as a good health practice, basically be barefoot outside. We, we oh, spend okay. a lot of our time, um, in, in our shoes or indoors on hard surfaces, going outside onto the soft surface of the dirt and the grass is, uh, apparently good for you. I don't know. I haven't really tried it. I'm going to try it. And the idea and the goal with this is, yeah, kind of ground yourself in, in one, we live in a physical reality kind of, but also Banjo, you were expressing some wanting to, I mean, how'd you put it? How'd you put it? Well, two things. One, you know, one of the things you come away with from McCarthy is just a sense of place, you know, just that, that bizarre magic that comes from kind of looking at the Texas wasteland 
that he sees. Um, and, and part of his writing comes from how well he knows the land. So I think, you know, that's, right. that's part of what we're trying to talk about. The other part is, especially when you're looking at McCarthy, you get the overwhelming transcendent feeling mm. of, of nature. You know, like when you go to the ocean, if you go to the beach and you're like looking out at all that water, you're like, there is something here that is so much bigger than me. You know, or you go to the Rockies and you're at the base of, of Pikes Peak and you're looking up and you're like, oh, yeah. that, that is all, you know, awe inspiring. One of my know? favorite things is you driving out West. And when you first see the mountains, that first you're crossing the plains, it's just like, there's something massive over there. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Especially after all the Kansas flat. Yeah, it's, you're it's driving. pretty boring. Yeah. And I, I think it's a good analogy for what we're looking for because and and this this may be difficult depending on where you live or or, or what's going on. But you know, if, I think the goal is to find some place where you have that sense of being a very small human being, mm. because the temptation for us is to is to think that we're the judge, you know, to think that right. we exist larger than all the rest of creation. And I think we need to find places, whether that's floating on a lake or going for a hike um, or just kind of going for that walk and seeing the expansive sky where, where we touch the transcendent, you know, that thing that's bigger beyond us. And we leave, we leave this kind of day-to-day framework of reality. Um, it's, I've been talking a lot about like finding this, finding the spiritual in life. And, um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of pushing for that, you know, find that place right. where you, where you realize there's more to life than I well, than and I to clarify, not like the in the uh, um, weird who God is everywhere. Not a new sense. agey, not yeah, not a pantheist. We're not yeah, not not pantheism. God is in the trees, kind of stuff. Um, right. But yeah, that that sense of place. I think that's a great phrase for one. Finding a a sense of being a created being. Correct. You know, putting yourself and realizing God made all of this. Here I am. Yeah. Um, what can I do but worship? I think that's that's the goal of this. So simple, 15 minutes outside that is intentional for out, outdoor time. Yeah, and before we wrap this section up, we should also just toss out there, uh, if you guys have any challenges that you would like for us to give a whirl, any things that you're interested in seeing on the podcast, uh, let us know. You've got the Discord uh, or the website. Absolutely. Give us, give us, give a, us a shout. A shout. We want to we want to know. Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, let us know what kind of challenges you want to see from us. Very good. I'm looking forward to this one. This will be nice and peaceful after reading Blood Meridian. Yeah, this will be a good detox. This has been the Forging Honor podcast. Music and production is by Elliot George. For more information about what we do or to learn how to get involved visit our website at forginghonor.com. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to like, subscribe, and give us a rating to bring others into the Forging Honor journey. On our website, you'll find information on how to do the challenges alongside us, as well as links to the many resources we mentioned in the show. And we do make a small amount from any purchases you make through our website links, so thank you in advance. Thanks for taking time with us today. We hope you'll take up the work alongside us and join us in the task of Forging Honor. We'll see you next time.